Welcome to Sermons from Iceland, a podcast that highlights the most recent sermons from Lofstofan Baptista Kirka, a Bible-based church in the Reykjavik, Iceland area. Pastor Gunnar Ingi Gunnarsson and the ministry staff at Lofstofan are grateful that you are joining us for today's study in God's Word. As a supplement to your weekly routine of meeting with your local church to worship Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. The following was recorded on Sunday, November 19, 2023. Today's message title, The Greater Glory of the Sun, a study in the book of Hebrews. Good morning. I lived here 10 years ago, my wife and I, before we had any kids, the three crazy kids that's been running around all day. And uh, that's how I met Gunnar and Svava and, um, and many of the, uh, of the other uh, Christians here with Lofstofan and Emmanuel Baptist Church back in the day, as it was. And uh, we fell in love with Iceland and we've been back several times and uh, always grateful to be with you, to worship with you, and um, thankful to be able to uh, share God's word with you. Please take your copy of God's word and open it to Hebrews chapter 3. And in God's kind providence, I, in a rush to the airport to get here, left my glasses in my van in the United States. And so if you see me squinting like this, it's because I can't read. Hebrews chapter three, we're going to read verses one through six. And I invite you after the reading to give thanks to God. In our church, I simply say, this is the word of the Lord. And we respond, thanks be to God. So I invite you to do that with me after we read. Hebrews chapter three, therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all of God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has, more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Pray with me. Father, we ask now that through your spirit, our minds would be illuminated or opened to the truth of your word, that we would see and behold Christ in his beauty, that we would come to trust in him deeply and our affections would be stirred so that we would love faithfully. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Hebrews is basically a sermon that's been written down. It's a sermon much like I preach this morning, Gunnar preaches normally. It's meant to be read aloud and as a sermon, it has a pattern or a flow. It begins with speaking about God's word and about God's son. Remember in chapter one, in the beginning, God spoke through the prophets in many different ways. 
But finally, in these last days, he speaks by who? By Jesus. So he speaks of God's word. And then he speaks more deeply about Jesus, God's son, who is the word of God. And he opens up the storehouses of the treasures of God and his son, Jesus, Jesus, who is more excellent than the angels. Jesus, who is superior and better. He who created the world by whom it was created and for whom it was created. And like every good sermon, it moves from the word into exhortation, into compelling and motivating the believers who hear the word to respond in faith. No good sermon would leave the response unattended to. You take God's word, we extol and worship Christ, and we are called to obey him and to respond in faith. Chapter three in the book of Hebrews is the first part of the responding in faith. The author's goal at this point is to stir up the affections and to say, now that you have thought about Jesus, now that you know that Jesus is superior, greater than the angels, he who came to earth and made us brothers and sisters and have brought many sons to glory, now you are to be exhorted encouraged, commanded to live in faith in Christ. That's why it says in verse one, therefore, therefore, holy brothers, this family of faith that has been united together through the blood of Jesus, united by faith in Christ, who has brought us many sons and daughters to glory, because of what we have just been told about Christ, his work and who he is, Christ, the son of God and his work, suffering for us and our sins, that we would be made like him in glory and righteousness. Because of this, brothers and sisters, we who share in a heavenly calling, we are called and exhorted to consider Jesus. Because Jesus had become a man in order to redeem mankind and to bring sons and daughters to glory, making us brothers or sisters. And because there is no other savior like Jesus, we must consider and acknowledge him as worthy of our worship and worthy of our consideration. We are to look and study Jesus. He is unique. He is more excellent and superior than the angels. And yet for a little while, he was made lower than them, like us. We consider him in his person as the son of God, both fully man and fully divine. And we consider his work, his suffering, his death. We consider the triumph of Jesus over death, his resurrection, is being raised on the third day and is ascending to Christ, to the Father at the right hand of the Father, where he now sits and makes intercession for his people, as Hebrews will later tell us. Because of this, we are called to consider Jesus. The whole point in the first two chapters was to say, Jesus is excellent. Jesus is better. Your tendency to worship other things, false gods, the things that grab your attention, the things that are 
wonderful things like angels and things like all of creation. In light of Jesus, they are nothing. Jesus, the son of God alone is worthy of our deep abiding affection and consideration. And so because of him and because of what he's done, we must set our attention on Christ. Not just for a time, but we must live a life that is in consideration of Christ. We live in relation to him. There is no other savior so loving, no other God so superior and worthy that we give our consideration to. And so we are called here in verse one to consider Jesus. And we are to consider him not as an an option out of many options. He is not one of many and we are free to pick which one we'd like the most. Some of us like to consider which clothes we'll wear this morning. We consider which shoes we'll put on. We'll consider which directions to take. We'll consider what we'll have for dinner. We'll consider what we'll do this week. We'll consider which projects to work on. That kind of consideration is not what we are called to do today. We do not consider as a choice among many, but as an evidence to truth. We consider as one to be examined that proves to us the beauty and the worth of Jesus. We do this more than just with our minds. We are called to consider Jesus with our whole selves. Many of you are good students. You read the Bible, you study the Bible, you know theology, you memorize scripture. This is great. But in your study, have you considered Jesus? Do you meditate on the word? Do you examine the work of Christ? Do you engage with the word, with all of the faculties of your mind and your soul? We are to consider with our whole selves. This is what we might call an experiential knowledge. It is a knowledge we experience beyond just with our minds, but with our whole person. It moves from our head to our hearts and out through our persons. It is the experiential knowledge of Christ that gives life and power and refreshment to a weary soul when you deeply consider Jesus. For those of you who are married, you may know something of this experiential knowledge. If you have a spouse, a husband, or a wife, you certainly know about your spouse. You can list their favorite foods. You can guess what things they'd like the most. But there is a knowledge about your husband or your wife that cannot be learned from a textbook. It cannot be learned from a biography that you would write about them. You learn it by living with them. You learn it by loving them. That's what we mean when we say to consider Jesus. It means to look deeply 
into the eyes of Christ our Savior and to fall so deeply in love, to have our affections so stirred and our hearts so moved that we experience the fullness of joy and knowing him and we consider him like that. So when you look into the eyes of your children and they know that you love them and you can sense their love for you, this is not a mere intellectual knowledge, but one lived in, one that is proven through your love and affection born out in your life together. When the author of Hebrews exhorts us to consider Jesus, it is an invitation to live a life with Jesus in which your affections are constantly stirred, that you are constantly moved to grow deeper in your faith, to grow deeper in your knowledge of him so that you might live in response and faith and obedience. This is not a suggestion or an option. It is a command of the Christian life. He does not say, if you'd like, and when you feel like it, consider Jesus. If you're having a good day, consider Jesus. If you get around to it, consider Jesus. No, he doesn't say this. He commands, because of who Jesus is, consider him. Look at him. It is an obligation or a duty of every Christian to pay attention to Christ. Christians are exhorted to the duty and the responsibility and the obligation of an attentive consideration of Christ. I say attentive and not passive. Simply coming and hearing and letting it come from one ear out the other is not a due consideration of the worthiness of Jesus. We must be diligent in our study and in our consideration of Christ. We are commanded. The, the, the text here is in the, the imperative, which means it is a command. We are told to do it, not asked if we'd like to. Because of who he is and what he's done, we are commanded to set our attention on Christ. Specifically here, we're called to consider him in two ways, as an apostle and as a high priest. He says, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession who was faithful to him who appointed him. Jesus is an apostle and a high priest. The book of Hebrews will speak more about the priestly work of Jesus as the argument progresses. But here we're speaking first of Jesus as an apostle. An apostle is simply a messenger. It's someone who is sent by God to speak for God. He is like an angel, but not like the ones that were created, not like the ones the Hebrews were tempted to worship and venerate. In the first chapter. Now he is an angel, an angelos, because he is a messenger of God who was sent by him. He was the one who was anointed and called to go. He's an apostle 
and a messenger of God. And an apostle's job is to represent God before man, which means he comes with the authority of God to speak God's word and to do God's will. He's called an apostle. And so we are called to consider Christ as one who has been sent by God. All of the scriptures point to the one who would be sent by God, who would come, God himself, in the flesh, and to do all that God promised he would do for his people. We are to consider Jesus as an apostle because he came as God's messenger, as God's prophet, speaking for God, representing God before man. This is what Jesus says he came to do. If you have seen me, you have seen the Father, he says. I and the Father are one. And no one comes to the Father but through me. Jesus represents God before man. He has authority. But we are also to consider him as our high priest. Not only in his prophetic office, but also here in his priestly office. Just as Moses, in one sense, was a priestly office before Aaron. We consider him as a high priest. When an apostle represents God before man, a priest's job is to represent man before God. And so Jesus comes. He comes as God's messenger, God's anointed one, his Messiah, the Christ. He comes as one sent by God, but also as one who represents us. In his divinity, he is our apostle, but in his humanity, he is our priest. We are to consider him in both views. As we hold up Christ before our eyes and we read the word, we consider Christ as him who was sent by God for us and him who goes before God on our behalf. He is the apostle and the high priest of our souls. This is what we are commanded to do, to consider him. But what about his ministry as an apostle? And what about his ministry as a high priest are we specifically called to consider? What makes his ministry as an apostle and high priest so valuable and so worthy of our consideration? It is his faithfulness in such things. The specific aspect of consideration is the faithfulness of Jesus as an apostle. This is why we get the comparison to Moses. He was faithful, it says in verse two, he was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses was also faithful in all of God's house. Moses represented God before the Israelites. Moses, along with Aaron, his brother, the priest, represented the Israelites before God. Moses was a mediator, wasn't he? He stood between God and man. And he was faithful in that task. But Jesus has come and he too was faithful. But he was faithful in a greater sense. He was faithful in that he completed and fulfilled and finished when Moses began. We have this contrast between Jesus and 
Moses, not so that we can compare Jesus with the faults and failures of Moses, not to disparage Moses or to make him out as somebody who wasn't that great. No, here we recognize and the author acknowledges that Moses was a faithful witness and servant of the Lord. The design here of the comparison between Jesus and Moses is to show that Jesus is better because Jesus finishes what Moses began. He fulfills what Moses spoke of and what Moses' ministry leads to. It's to show the superiority of Jesus as the final and complete and perfect fulfillment of Moses' original ministry. This is what it says in verse five. Moses was faithful in all of God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. So Moses' job as a servant in God's house was to speak or to testify about what was to come. But what was to come was Christ, the one sent by God. And because he is Jesus, fulfilling all that was spoken of in the testimony of Moses. Moses fades into the background and Jesus becomes clear. The comparison is in three senses. We see first that Moses was a servant, but Jesus is the son. Look in verse three, Jesus has been counted more worthy of glory than Moses as much more glory as a builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For everyone, every house that is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all of God's house of a servant to testify of the things that were spoken later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. The first contrast between Moses and Jesus is that Moses was a servant. Jesus is the son. And this speaks to the difference of the person of Moses and the difference of the person of Jesus. They are different in essence in one major way. Jesus is divine. He owns the house. It is his because he is the architect. Moses merely served in the house, but Jesus as the son owns the house and all that is in it. And just as he who builds the house has more honor than the house itself, so does Jesus, owner of the house, have more honor and glory than a servant in the house. A servant may have honor and a servant may have glory, but the owner has more. The builder's glory is greater. We're used to in the New Testament seeing the word servant as it relates to deacon work. Dulos is the Greek. But the word here is not the same as deacon, merely servants. It is one of honor. It is one of glory and esteem. Moses is to be honored and esteemed as a servant. And if Moses could be honored and esteemed as a servant in God's house, how much more honor and glory and esteem is due the owner, the son who resides in the house, and whose house it is. Moses was a servant, but Jesus is the son. 
The second consideration here is that Moses was simply a part of the house, but Jesus is over the house. The servant has no authority, but what he is given to do, but the son has authority over all. It is his house. Christ, it says in verse six, is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house, it says. Jesus has authority over the house. A servant simply has a job. We also see though that Moses testified of what was coming, but Jesus was him who fulfilled that testimony. Of all the comparisons and the contrasts between Moses and Jesus, we are to come away with the understanding that Moses is greater. Moses or Jesus was greater. Moses as a servant does not have the same degree of glory than the son who is Jesus. The point here is not to disparage Moses, but to help the Hebrews move on from the ways of Moses and the words of Moses to the words of Christ. Because of this superiority, because of Christ's superior faithfulness, he expands the blessing and the inheritance of God's house to all of those who would confess Christ as Lord. There are some who followed Moses and lived comfortably in the house that Moses served in. But those who follow Christ live not as servants, but as rulers with Christ. So Christ's superior faithfulness as one sent by God and one who represents us before God as an apostle and a high priest expands the blessing and the inheritance of God's house and his household to all of those who call upon him and confess him as Lord. This is what it says. And we are his house, his household. We share in the blessing and the inheritance. We are his family. If indeed we hold fast our confidence or our confession and our boasting and our hope. If he is our hope and he is the boasting of our lives, if he is our confidence, if he is our confession, then we too are his household and not the servants, but with the son. This is what the author wants us to understand. There is a greater blessing and inheritance for those who are part of the household of the son and not simply servants along with Moses in the house. We are to turn our attention to Jesus, not to Moses. Moses must stand with John the Baptist who says that I must decrease and he must increase. It is not to disparage or to belittle or to take anything away from the ministry of Moses under the old covenant or what John the Baptist did in preparation for Jesus' arrival. But it is to say that Jesus alone is worthy of consideration of our diligent study, of our affection, and of our, our whole life lived in reverence and submission before him. He is the son, the ruler over the house, is greater in glory and honor than Moses. Consider his faithfulness as an apostle, as a messenger of God, who has been sent by God and consider his faithfulness as a high priest 
Jesus is the son of God, we are told, who comes and takes on flesh. He sets aside momentarily the divine right of his divinity. And he becomes a servant by taking on the form of a flesh. He becomes a man. And he takes on the frailty and the suffering of humanity. And though in his human life, he never sinned and fully obeyed God, he suffered as a sinner. He was crucified, nailed to the cross on which he hung and died. And the full weight of God's wrath was poured out on Christ against unrighteousness, your unrighteousness, my unrighteousness, against sin and idolatry, against our rebellion. God's wrath poured out on Christ. Though he did not sin, he became sin, that we would become the righteousness of God. He was there as an atonement, offering himself as a high priest offers a sacrifice. He offers himself to God as our sacrifice, substituting himself in our place, bearing God's wrath against sin that was ours to bear. And he dies. He was put into a tomb and there he laid for three days. But on the third day, because of the sinlessness of his life, because of the perfection of his obedience, because of his perfect sacrifice, God fully satisfying his wrath, raised him from the dead. Jesus comes out of the tomb and he shows his superiority above all by rising from the dead and declaring his work completely finished. He visits the disciples and he tells them that what he has accomplished for them on the cross is their message to declare to the world. They now become the apostles and the sent ones. And so we continue the long line of those who are faithful, looking to Christ. We saw in chapter two, who is the founder and perfecter of our faith. And again, in chapter 12, we look to Christ who with the joy that was set before him endures the cross and despising its shame, running the race with endurance. So there is a superior faithfulness that opens up the blessing of being a member of God's household, not simply to those who follow in the footsteps of Moses, but to all of those who call upon the name of Jesus. And so we see the link between the old covenant and the new here. Moses was a mediator of the old covenant. He was the one who received the word of God and delivered the law to the Israelites and commanded them to obey them. And he was the one who gave to them this covenant that God made with Israel. But Jesus in his blood, we are told, establishes a new covenant. And there's a continuity between the old and the new in that Moses began what Jesus finishes. The house in which Moses served in the house that he confesses is that Jesus becomes the fulfillment of all that was confessed and spoken of. And he, we see, is the ultimate owner of that house. 
And so this is why we can read the entire Bible together as one book. Because what Moses speaks of and the old covenant leads to is fulfilled and perfected in Christ. Jesus' superior faithfulness as high priest means that he deserves our fixed attention. We are called to hold fast, to cling to and to not drift from. Remember that we are exhorted to, to, to avoid drifting away. We are called to hold fast to the confession of our hope in Christ. We are called to cling to this better mediator of a better covenant. And we have been given the help of a more able mediator. And we've been granted greater and more direct access to God through the son than anyone ever enjoyed under the old covenant through Moses. This is why the author can go on to say that since we have been justified with God, we have confidence with which we can approach the throne and seek help in our greatest time of need. Jesus is superior. We must hold fast to this superiority as a greater and truer Moses. And so the Hebrews here are commanded not to return to the customs of Moses. Because of the persecution they faced, they were wondering if it was worth following Jesus any longer. Maybe we should just go in back to being Hebrews. Maybe we should go back to being faithful to the old covenant. Maybe we should go back to the laws and the restrictions and to the sacrifices. But here the author says, no, Jesus is better, worthy more of glory than Moses ever was. Consider Jesus. And so as the Hebrews were not to return to the customs of Moses, so you and I are not to return to the former ways of our own lives before Christ. We're not to simply turn to the religious flattery and the empty faith that simply coming to church or reading our Bibles and checking the box tricks us into thinking is enough. We must come to Christ as our all in all. We cannot come to Christ and show him what we have done and think that we have earned it. We cannot demand of Christ because of our works access to God. None of this will ever be sufficient. We come to Christ having turned away from our former way of living and to say, you are better and greater, more worthy of honor. This is the Christ you are called to consider this morning, brothers and sisters, to turn away from former way of living. If you are tempted at all to say, is this Christianity thing really worth continuing on in? As society continues to mock, as your friends and family continue to deride, as culture around you continues to get more and more hostile to the faith, as Christians in various parts of the world face very real suffering and persecution, the temptation may be, I don't know, I want to follow Jesus. If it means losing my family, my friends, my job, my life. But the exhortation here is, it's a worthy sacrifice if you have considered Jesus rightly. If you simply consider Moses, one might not die for him. 
But if you consider Christ, the apostle and great high priest of your souls, what wouldn't you give if you see him rightly? We are exhorted, commanded even to consider Jesus because there are times in our lives we will be demanded of. Will we follow Jesus? When your faith is tested and when the pressures amount, if you are considering Jesus, you will walk in his faithfulness. Christ is called an apostle and a great high priest. And he was faithful in these offices. And we are commanded and called to consider him as faithful and trust him. A few exhortations then. First, know that Jesus has built the house. He's the architect of the building, not this building, but of the church. He says to Peter, when Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the son of the living God, he says, that's right. Flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but your father in heaven. And on this rock, the rock of Peter's confession that Jesus is the son of the living God, I will build my church. Jesus is the architect and the builder of his household. And because he builds it as a masterful architect, it can never fall or fail. He continues to say to Peter, on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. This is a beautiful testimony of how powerful the church may be. And it is most resilient, most prosperous, not when it is powerful, not when it is in a position of status, but when it is under the thumb of an oppressive government, when it is wrestling against the spiritual forces in the world, when it is fighting against those who seek after its life, against persecution and famine and nakedness. That is when the church shows who heads God really is. If Jesus built a house, the house will not fall. It cannot crumble. It is built on a solid foundation. Ephesians chapter two tells us that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And what did they do? They preached of Jesus. First Timothy chapter three tells us that, that we are the household of God. The church is God's family. It is his house and it is a pillar and a buttress of truth. It is that which stands for and declares to the world that God has built this house. We stand on the foundation of Christ who laid down his life for us. And because he is our foundation and he has built the house, that the house itself upon which the cornerstone is Jesus himself, nothing can ever overcome it. Sure, the church may falter at times. We're sinners after all. But Jesus has promised to build his house and he has done it and will continue to do so. Which means that we belong the greatest community and family on earth. Being part of the household of God is the truest belonging that you and I can experience. 
I've stand here today in a room full of many different nationalities. And I probably will have never have met you before in my life or ever again. What makes it possible? It's faith in Christ. There is no other family that can do this. We see glimpses of the family, which is good and beautiful. When we see adoption, we see the blending of families which come together. But all of this is meant to point to the union that believers, brothers and sisters have with Christ. And so we can truly call ourselves a family because we are together, united with one another in Christ. That is the greatest and truest of all belonging. You can belong to a gym, a club. You can belong to a family. But the greatest and truest of your belonging is to Christ. If indeed you are in Christ. But we must also consider not only that Jesus builds the house and therefore will never fall, but that we too would be exhorted to faithfully commit ourselves to Christ based on our observation of him. We're not simply called to consider him and consider him alone, but we consider him so that we might hold fast more faithfully. So our faithful commitment to Christ is sovereignly secured by our unmoving confidence in Christ. So he says we are his house if we indeed hold fast to our confidence in Christ and to our boasting in our hope. Our confidence in Christ is rooted in our hopeful confession of Christ. When we boast in Christ, our confidence is secured. When our confidence is secured, we are more faithful and hold fast. I could put it another way. Our confession, Christ Jesus is the son of God, leads to confidence. And our confidence leads to commitment. Our confession leads to confidence and our confidence leads to commitment. And a breakdown in any one of these is a breakdown in the other. And so we are called to believe, to to trust and acknowledge and confess that Jesus is God. Paul says in the book of Romans that anyone who confesses with his mouth that Jesus is Lord and believes in his heart that he was risen from the dead will be saved. To be a Christian means to confess Jesus as a son of God and being risen from the dead. We are exhorted to believe we must begin with our confession. Jesus is the son of God. And then we are to boast in Christ, not in ourselves. And as we do so, we commit to our faithfulness in following Jesus and forsaking the world. We remind ourselves what the apostle John told his readers, that he who is in us is greater than him who is in the world. Therefore, we can keep our eyes from darkness, apart from deceit, when our eyes and our heart's attention and affection are affixed to Christ. So how are we to be faithful in the world? How do we hold fast that we may be convinced that we belong to the household of God? We begin by boasting. We confess Jesus is the son of God. 
We boast in him alone, not in ourselves. And we commit ourselves serving him. How are we to be faithful in this work? We fix our eyes on Jesus as the fullness of our thoughts. We return to Christ to experience the saving knowledge of him through word and prayer and community and fixing our eyes on Christ as the fullness of our thoughts through word, prayer, and through our community leads to a habit of cultivating faithfulness. We want to be faithful? We must look to Christ. We set our thoughts on him. We pray to him. And we dwell together in unity in his name. We must cultivate faithfulness in our lives. Some of us need to weed the garden of our faith. We need to pull out the weeds of sin and temptation that we can more beautifully and clearly behold Jesus as the flower of our faith. Some of us need to sow seeds of biblical truth in our life. Believing lies in error will not bring forth fruit of biblical wisdom and righteousness. So some are called to weed the garden of faith. Some need to sow seeds of biblical truth and still yet others need to find quiet and to rest, to nourish the garden that it may grow in faithfulness. And still some of you need to flee isolation and need to join the brothers and sisters more faithfully, more regularly. He will exhort the believers here not to neglect the meeting and the gathering of the saints as is the habit of some, for they will damage their selves and their faith and soon find it shipwrecked. Some may need to find quiet and rest while others need to flee isolation and join the brothers and sisters. So yes, some of you need to do less and some of you need to do more. All of us, however, must seek habits that facilitate the deepening of your consideration of Jesus. Through the means of grace, his word, through prayer and communion with others. If you're not a believer this morning, then the exhortation to you is simple. You are invited to consider Christ. You may not have considered him before as your savior. You've considered him as a teacher. You've considered him as a wise sage. You've considered him as a historical figure. You've considered him as somebody who is worthy of your respect. You have not considered him as the author and the perfecter of your faith. You have not considered him as one who was sent by God to redeem you from your sin. And you have not considered him as the high priest of your soul who has offered himself as a sacrifice for you. Friend, I want you to know that the invitation to you stands now. Consider him. Allow your pride to be humbled and bow a knee at the foot of the cross that as you look to Christ, you recognize that he is greater and better than anyone or anything this world may offer. 
that he alone has conquered the power of sin and death and darkness. And he alone is worthy of your worship. You are to consider, and as you consider, you will experience the fullness of joy that we have experienced in knowing him. And as Christians, we set our eyes on Christ day in and day out, knowing that such consideration stirs our hearts and our affections for Christ. Stirring our affections leads to our boasting and our boasting leads to our confidence and our confidence leads to our holding fast in the midst of persecution, trial, despair, and suffering. Brothers and sisters, consider Christ, not as an option among many, but as proof of God's love for you and all that he does and in all that he is for your good, for his glory. Just pray with me. Father, thank you for Jesus. We have only begun to consider Jesus as our savior. So I ask God that you would this morning and this week to move in our hearts that we would be pressed to read and pray and study and to have conversations with others about Jesus. That we would see the, the weakness and the failures of our, our readiness to do this that we would resolve even now to be people who study diligently, who consider faithfully and whose eyes never wander, but are fixed on Christ, his gospel. We love you. I pray now in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to Sermons from Iceland, a weekly podcast highlighting the Sunday teaching ministry of Lofstofan Baptiste Kirka in Reykjavik, Iceland. If you have a desire to see the gospel spread in Iceland, consider partnering with the Iceland Project. For more information, go to theicelandproject.org. If you live in Iceland or plan on visiting Iceland soon, make plans to worship with us at 11 a.m. on Sundays. Our address is Fagrating 2A, Kopavar, only 7 miles or 12 kilometers southeast of downtown Reykjavik. You can reach Pastor Gunnar via the Lofstofan Facebook page or by email. His address is lofstofan at lofstofan.is. Join us next week for another Bible-based and Jesus-centered message on Sermons from Iceland. Music